This morning, we continue our theme of holiday light, L-I-G-H-T, living inside God's highest truth. And today, we're going to explore the idea of living inside God's highest truth by sharing our light. Now, I know that we've touched on this concept and used that L-I-G-H-T acronym before, but there's a reason for it. It's at the core of everything we teach here, and it's important to remind ourselves of it pretty regularly. So although key concepts stay the same from light service to light service, we try to present it in different ways each time because we realize that people learn in different ways. So we do everything we can to reframe the ideas each time so they're received and readily applicable by everyone who listens. So contemplate this for a moment. We are, each of us, an expression of God, the great giver of life, the force of creativity and energy that is back of all things to sound Holmesian. That's a thing now. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. You understood what I meant, right? It's a thing. It is our highest truth to be a giver to life, not in an obligatory way, but because it's our divine nature to give. Now, I know that message isn't always well-received, and that's okay. Does anyone know who Father John Wesley is? Anybody ever heard of him? He and his brother Charles are credited with founding the Methodist movement way back in 1729, and if you're not familiar with him, look him up. A whole lot of what he had to say almost 300 years ago is just as relevant today. And here's a quote of his, which sort of speaks to where I'm going here. He's talking about folks who first embrace and practice faith. And he says that they become industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. And he continues with, now, if that man, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can... I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that man. And there's a story based on that quote, which speaks to how messages like that one can be received. So so there Father Wesley is, and he's given an impassioned sermon, really getting into it. And he says, you should get all you can. Many heads nodded and mumbled in quiet assent. You should keep all you can. The listeners beginning to feel kind of excited about where this is going. They begin to call out their agreement, hails of amen. And after pausing for the room to settle, Wesley added, and you should give all you can. And there was silence. No one made a sound for what must have been a very awkward few seconds for Father Wesley until someone from the rear of the room said this in a loud whisper. Why do you have to go and ruin a perfectly good sermon? Today, I too plan to give you a perfectly good sermon about giving all you can. But don't get ahead of me here. I seldom take things in the expected direction. Even when I'm the one who decided on the direction in the first place, things often tend to veer towards something else entirely when I make plans in advance. Who had that quote? Life is what happens when you're busy making plans. Who was that? That's what I thought. John Lennon. So Ernest Holmes said at page 440 of The Science of Mind, when our thoughts rest entirely upon ourselves, we become abnormal and unhappy. But when we give ourselves with enthusiasm to any legitimate purpose, losing ourselves in the thing which we are doing, we become normal and happy. 
Let those who are sad, depressed, or unhappy find some altruistic purpose into which they can pour their whole being, and they will find a new inflow of life which they have never dreamed. Also, as a U.S. Open tennis legend and civil rights activist Arthur Ashe once said, from what we get, we make a living. What we give, however, makes a life. Why? Because, as I said in a moment, it is in our divine nature to give. We are creations of the infinite giver. We were born to give. We shine our light when we do. Now, to be clear about what I mean by our gifts to others, I want to share another passage from the Bible. It's, it's the story of a beggar who couldn't walk, and he relied on others to give him enough money to survive. Because way back in the olden days, people weren't very accommodating to people who were differently abled. So that poor man asked alms of Peter and John as they were going into the gate of the temple, and Peter replied, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. Arise and walk. And the man picked up his bed and walked. Such as I have, I give unto thee. Those words are the key. Today we're talking about sharing of what you have, sharing of yourself. And here's a list of nine gifts that won't cost you a cent. First, the gift of listening, but you must really listen. No interrupting, no daydreaming, and here's a big one, no planning your response. I know that's hard to do, for myself included, Um, but just listening. The second is the gift of laughter. Clip cartoons, share articles and funny stories. Your gift will say, I love to laugh with you. I love to see you smile. Three, the gift of appreciation. It can be a simple, thanks for the help, or thanks for being you. Heartfelt appreciation may be remembered for a lifetime, and believe it or not, it can even change a life. Four is the gift of a compliment. A simple and sincere, you look great in red. You did a super job, or that was a wonderful meal, can make someone's day. Something I've noticed out and about in the world, when you hear so, so many people talking about rude people acting out. You see so many of those displays. I've noticed something entirely different. I'm wondering if you guys have seen this. I can be out minding my business, and I will hear strangers complimenting each other. People are going out of their way to voice appreciation for somebody they've never met. So I think that while the volatile folks who are looking for conflict may be showing that more, I think the rest of us are shining a little brighter these days. So let's not lose sight of that. The next is number five, the gift of kindness. Like I was talking about every day, go out of your way to do something kind for someone, no matter how big or small. Number six is the gift of solitude. This doesn't sound like a gift, but there are times when we want nothing better than to be left alone. Be sensitive to those times and give the gift of solitude to others. Can we talk about it? is not always a question that wants to be answered. Am I right, therapists? (laughs) Seven is the gift of a cheerful disposition. The easiest way to feel good is to extend a kind word to someone. Really, it's not hard to say, have a nice day, and mean it. Eight is the gift of affection. As one anonymous poet wrote, no moving parts, no batteries, no monthly payments, and no fees. Inflation-proof, non-taxable. In fact, It's quite relaxable. It can't be stolen. It won't pollute. One size fits all. Do not dilute. 
It uses little energy but yields results enormously, relieves your tension and your stress, invigorates your happiness, combats depressions, make you, makes you beam, and elevates your self-esteem. Your circulation, it corrects without unpleasant side effects. It is, I think, the perfect drug I prescribe, my friend, the hug. Author and family therapist Virginia Satir once said, we need four hugs a day for survival. We need eight hugs a day for maintenance. We need 12 hugs a day for growth. And I'd like to add the thought that we need as many more hugs as possible per day if we want to thrive. Right? Now, I know that hugs and touching aren't always seen as safe during this time of the global cootie contagion. But whenever it does feel safe, and whenever it's a good moment, be generous with appropriate hugs and pats on the back and cuddles and handholds. Let these small actions demonstrate the love you have for your family and friends. But a side note on this thought, which probably goes without saying, but I'd be remiss if I didn't touch upon it. Consent is really important when it comes to these things. So make sure you huggers and huggies kind of touch base first and make sure everyone's on board. But moving on, there's the last. Number nine is the gift of your presence. Sometimes it is simply the gift of our presence, especially when we are in the place of knowing that we are reflecting the presence. There is a Sufi teaching which says, past the seeker as he prayed came the crippled and the beggar and the beaten, and seeing them he cried, great God, how is it that a loving creator can see such things and yet do nothing about them? God said, I did do something. I made you. We are here to help others who are here to help others who are here to help others. We are in an infinite circle of giving and in return receiving. The universe operates through dynamic exchange. Giving and receiving are different aspects of the flow of energy in the universe. And in our willingness to give that which we seek, we keep the abundance of the universe circulating in our lives, right? So Holmes in The Science of Mind on page 440 wrote, when the law of circulation is retarded, that means slowed down, stagnation results. It is only as we allow the divine current to flow through us on and out that we really express life. The law of giving and receiving is definite. Emerson tells us to beware of holding too much good in our hands. As I told someone recently, you can't be open to receive if your hands are full, right? In the Buddhist Pali Suttas, it is repeatedly said that talk on giving, or dana katha, was invariably the first topic to be discussed by the Buddha in his graduated exposition of the Dhamma. Whenever the Buddha spoke to an audience of people who had not yet come to regard him as their teacher, he would start by emphasizing the power and value of giving. And only after his audience had come to appreciate this virtue would he introduce other aspects of his teaching. And as with giving, he did the same. Once they understood those, he would move on to still more. In the Bible, Paul reminds us that we are at our best when we feel the freedom of giving from a deep sense of abundance. At 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he writes, but remember this, he who sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he who sows generously shall reap also generously. So let 
every man give according to what he has decided in his mind, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. So with this in mind, I'd like to pose to you this model of the three types of givers. And it's based on this verse. So first there's the sparing giver. They give only after much hesitation and then just the leftovers, the worst of what they have. Their underlying belief is that there's not enough. There's the cheerful giver. They give what they themselves would use. They share what they have with less deliberation and with more open-handedness. The underlying belief is that there will be more. They believe in a friendly universe. And there's the godly giver. This is the highest kind of givers. They offer the very best of what they have. They share spontaneously and in the moment without needing to deliberate at all. Giving has become natural to their conduct. Their underlying belief is that life is abundant. The universe provides in rich abundance. I'd like to share a story with you. This is a true story given to us from uh, Dr. Roger A. Reed, and he writes, traditionally, Christmas is a time for children. It's about counting down days until Santa arrives and waking up Christmas morning and finding a huge pile of gifts underneath the tree. But for a lot of families living in the small town of Yuma, Arizona in the 1950s and 60s, the approach of Christmas brought additional stress and frustration because the parents couldn't afford to buy their children gifts. Many of them couldn't even afford to put up a tree unless they waited till the last minute, usually a day or two before Christmas, when some of the merchants discounted the price of the scraggly leftover trees to a dollar or two. It certainly wasn't the way those poor families wanted it. They just didn't have the money. Yuma wasn't known for its collection of high net worth individuals or upscale residential areas. In fact, it was about as far as you could get from the serene and privileged life often depicted on the canvas of a Norman Rockwell painting. There were no storybook houses sitting on deep, manicured lawns, no estates with gated entrances and long driveways sheltered by leafy canopies of hundred-year-old oak trees. No, in the 50s and 60s, Yuma was a blue-collar town where people worked six and often seven days a week just to pay the rent and utility bill and to put food on the table. So for a lot of folks in Yuma, the arrival of Christmas didn't bring the good-natured attitude and sense of joy that's usually associated with the season. Instead, they reluctantly accepted the holiday as a stressful, worrisome time, a time when their children's expectations for electric trains, bicycles, and Barbie dolls had to be balanced with a limited income and a tight budget. About the best they could do was to pick up an inexpensive dollar toy and Hope it wouldn't leave their kids disappointed. But in the small, windswept desert town of Yuma, there were those who tried to help and make a difference. And one of those people was a man named Mr. Ardell. Mr. Ardell owned a small neighborhood grocery store located just a few blocks from the old downtown area. Surrounding that little store were blocks and blocks of run-down houses that hadn't seen a coat of paint in 20 years. Many of these old homes were built at the turn of the century with rooms that were stark and drafty, and the walls covered with peeling wallpaper. They were depressing places to live, but rental prices in this neighborhood were the cheapest in town, and so most of the houses were occupied by families that couldn't afford anything better. Mr. Ardell had a son, an eight-year-old named Ardell Jr., and Mr. Ardell often took his son with him on Saturday mornings to open up the store and start another business day. 
Ardell Jr. always enjoyed spending time in the store, and during the week after school, it wasn't unusual for the boy to walk the four blocks to the store to visit with his father and take care of what he called his after-school job. In reality, it wasn't a job at all, as Ardell Jr. usually spent most of the time enjoying a soda and reading all the new comic books. But for an eight-year-old, it was a great diversion. And Ardell Jr. spent as much time at the store as he could. It was there during those few hours after school and on Saturday mornings that Mr. Ardell's son learned about how other people lived and struggled. He listened to their stories about an earlier time when they were much younger and how they had imagined that they'd become successful and prosperous only to find that life had something else in mind. Ardell Jr. learned to listen and, when it was appropriate, to say something encouraging or look for a reason to offer a compliment. He did it by watching the interactions between his father and the customers, realizing that his dad made everyone, regardless of how they were dressed or how much money they had to spend, feel right at home. And although Ardell Jr. didn't understand it at the time, there was also something special in the way that others treated his father. They not only respected him, they knew that he was, in a most honest and reliable way, a good man. A man of integrity. The same words the preacher would use to describe him at his funeral some 15 years later. As it happens in all families, Ardell Jr. grew older, and after graduating from college, he moved to Denver to work for a large company. And like many adult children, he'd always return home on the holidays to visit his family and see his old friends. And it was during one of those visits, some 20 years after the death of his father, that Ardell Jr., now in his early 40s, sat down with an old friend from high school. They decided to meet over lunch at one of the little fast food restaurants in the older part of town. That restaurant had been there for over 60 years, and Ardell Jr. hadn't been inside since the eighth grade when he'd walk across the street from the junior high school to buy an order of fries and a Coke. And as he looked the place over, he saw a new Formica counter and newly upholstered boots, but for the most part, it looked the same, except for a large display of pictures, old black and white photographs that covered an entire wall. They were pictures of Yuma, many of which showed the downtown area from the 1940s and 50s. Even the original post office was there, and in later photos taken in the 50s and 60s, the J.C. Penney store and the Western Auto store and the Madison Hotel coffee shop, all places that Ardell Jr. had visited as a child, usually with his father, to buy a piece of hardware to fix a broken lawnmower or to pick up a new coat for the start of the new school year. The server in the restaurant noticed how absorbed Ardell Jr. was in the old photos. And she came from behind the counter, asking him if he recognized any of the downtown area. He told her that he did, and that, in fact, he'd spent much of his childhood working at his father's grocery store, a store that no longer existed, having been torn down years before to make room for a new county administration building. What was the name of the store? The server asked. Five-point market, Ardell Jr. told her, and then he pointed it out in one of the pictures. The server, a 40-something Latino gal, asked, Is your name Ardell? Ardell Jr. nodded. And the man who owned that store, he was your father? The server asked. Ardell Jr. was becoming a little apprehensive at this point, but he admitted it. Yes, that was my dad. The server's eyes lit up. You wait here. I'll be right back. The woman raced back into the kitchen and began yelling in Spanish. A burst of conversation followed. Now, Ardell Jr.'s Spanish wasn't very good, and with at least three people talking at once, he had no idea what was going on. But seconds later, the kitchen door burst open. The server had returned with her two brothers, and as they swarmed around Ardell Jr., one of the men said, 
your father would drop off groceries at our door. He would ring the bell and then run back to his car because he didn't want us to know where the food came from. He didn't want us to see him. As Ardell Jr. stood there, he wasn't sure what they were talking about. Then the server told him the story. Sometimes she said, there was no work, and our parents had to struggle just to put food on the table. I remember how much they hated it because they were so proud, and yet they knew they needed help. But your father, Mr. Ardell, he also knew. So they all played this game. Our parents would pretend not to know who brought the food, and your father did his best to keep it a secret, not telling anyone. And that's when Ardell Jr. experienced a flood of memories that before now had never made sense. About twice a week, all year long, just before it was time to leave the store for home, Mr. Ardell would tell his son, I just need to fill this order and drop it off. And then he'd go down the aisles, filling a large cardboard box with canned goods, soap, fresh hamburger meat, a loaf of bread, longhorn cheese, some deli meat, I had a lettuce, tomatoes, carrots, an onion, and a half dozen potatoes. It was kind of his rule. He didn't stop, though, until the box was completely full, finally topping it off with a bag of penny candy and a handful of suckers. Ardell Jr. always wondered why his dad never parked close to the house where he was making the delivery. Instead, his father would pull around the corner or stop several doors down, even though there was plenty of room directly in front. Leaving the engine running, Mr. Ardell would tell his son to wait in the car while he carried the box to the door. And suddenly, he'd be running back fast. He'd jump in the car and take off. I'm just ready to go home, he'd say. And that's all he'd say when his son asked him why he always ran from each house. And now... 35 years later, Odell Jr. had finally discovered the truth, the real reason his dad was always in a rush to get back to the car. We were chasing him, the server said. My brothers and I would hear him knocking on the screen, but when we'd open the door, there was only a box of food. The first few times, we didn't see anyone. Then later, we saw somebody running away fast, and we wanted to catch them to find out who he was, but our parents told us not to chase him, to always let him get away. Then one day we saw your dad's car drive past and we knew it was the man who owned the grocery store in the corner. Sometimes we could see both of you in the car and we would think how lucky you were to be so rich to be able to give us candy. At the time, eight-year-old Ardell Jr. saw it as just another delivery, another order that had to be dropped off before they could go home. But to the people who opened the door and found that box of food, it was kindness and compassion and hope. For many families in the 50s and 60s, Mr. Ardell became a mystery Santa. And while he never wore a Santa costume, he would make the same stealthy approach to each house. And then after ringing the bell, he'd take off like a streak, determined to remain anonymous, hoping his gift would feed both body and soul, but never at the cost of another man's dignity. I don't believe Mr. Ardell ever told anyone what he was doing. Maybe he saw it as something that needed to be done, and he knew he was the one to do it. But even today, some 45 years after his death, there are still people in the town of Yuma who remember the man who owned Five Point Market, a man who understood that the ideals of Christmas meant more than hanging a wreath on the front door or stringing lights around the front yard. Most important, Mr. Ardell believed in offering compassion and helping others, and that it was something that needed to be done throughout the year and not restricted to just a couple of weeks in December over the 25 years that Mr. Ardell gave food to families in need, it is estimated that he delivered over 2,500 boxes of groceries. I could put a value on that food, but since Mr. Ardell never thought about the cost, it's not appropriate that I evaluate what those gifts were worth in dollars and cents. Only that they often made the difference between a healthy child or one who went to bed hungry. 
And I'll end this story with a small confession, he says. It's no coincidence that my middle name is Ardell. I know about this story and about Mr. Ardell because that eight-year-old boy who worked in his father's grocery store on Saturdays and after school was me. I sat in the car while my father delivered those boxes of food on the doorsteps of families in need, never knowing what he was really doing or why he was always in a hurry to drive away, not wanting anyone to recognize him. I didn't find out the truth until I met some kids from one of those families, and they told me what was really going on and how much it meant to them. And that's why that is my favorite Christmas story. That was his story, and that's something, isn't it? Mr. Ardell shared his light. He was living inside God's highest truth in a huge way and for many decades. In her book, Return to Love, Marianne Williamson wrote, In every community there is work to be done. In every nation there are wounds to heal. And in every heart there is the power to do it. In every one of our hearts there is the power to do it. Power to be the change that is needed in any and every moment possible, that's living inside God's highest truth. Thank you.